Well, why are so many people today struggling to find peace? Why, why is there so much worry in our world today? All the statistical research that is being done right now in the Western world points to skyrocketing numbers in terms of anxiety and depression and phobias and panic attacks and PTSD and others. And of course, with that, there is this massively growing demand for medication to deal with some of these disorders. So I, I joke, one way or another, Big Pharma always comes out on top, doesn't it? Now, there's no question that there's a lot going on in our world today that would lead somebody to say, I can't find peace in my heart. You think about the fallout from the pandemic and, and, and worse, the lockdowns, right? All the struggles we went through in terms of our lives, our jobs, our mental health. We have this new and escalating war right now in Ukraine and threats just this past week of Russia using nuclear weapons and perhaps drawing us into that fight. We clearly have an unstable government here in the United States. We are lost in our wokeness and our president has signs of dementia. Our borders are unprotected. Our education system is totally broken and we seem to be at each other's throats in every way possible. We see a continued rise in social media anxiety. There is the insanity of the current trans movement and there is a massive spike of crime across our country. I could go on, but I will spare you all that pain. You're very aware of those things. Now, some of the cultural anxiety that we're feeling today is due to the fact that news spreads so fast right now. A hundred years ago, there could be a tragedy on the other side of the earth and thousands of people could have died and you would never hear about it. But today, all the graphic details of every story comes to us in the blink of an eye, straight to these devices that we have with us all the time and we're checking every 10 seconds. So the conditions are worse than ever. So here's an interesting question to consider as we dive into our text for this morning. If you weren't a believer, say you didn't acknowledge the existence of God, say you didn't trust in Jesus, say you didn't think there was any divine plan for how things in this world are going to play out, how would you cope today? How would you cope with all the chaos and all the instability flying around? What would you find hope in for tomorrow? It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? This week in my study time, I visited a secular mental health information website. Just because I was curious, what would they suggest for dealing with anxiety? How does the world search for peace? And I, I found some very interesting things. They had a number of suggestions, and, and, and ironically, some of them had a tinge of biblical truth to them. In fact, let me give you seven things that I saw on this website that they say uh, would help somebody seek peace in this life. Number one, they said, acknowledge your worries. That's a good advice, isn't it? We don't want to live in a world of denial or a, a world of falsehood. We want to stay connected to reality. Number two, they said, reframe your thoughts. We know that's helpful because we know how the battle is in the mind and, and our, our, our thoughts can uh, definitely influence our attitude. Number three, they said exercise regularly. Okay, I'm a fan of, of keeping your body healthy. Number four, they said meditate for 10 to 15 minutes every day. That sounds, sounds good, right? There's benefit in finding quiet time in your life to meditate on the things of, of your life. Number five, use deep breathing techniques. And I guess that's designed to slow you down a little bit, maybe give you a little bit more oxygen, okay? Uh, number six, I found this interesting, start a journal. 
Write down your thoughts and feelings in order to improve your life. And then finally, number seven, build a support network. Huh. Huh. Living in community is actually a very healthy thing for dealing with anxiety. So if you step back and look at that list, there are some things there that we can applaud. But at the same time, isn't it painfully obvious that the things suggested here are really just little band-aids on a gaping wound, aren't they? For someone seeking peace in the midst of chaos, these things might provide a glimmer of, of temporary or momentary relief, but they have no ability, no power to solve mankind's most pressing need. But that's the way the world thinks. Now, what about us as Christians? How should we respond to all this confusion in our world? How should we respond to all the instability around us? How do we find peace in the midst of this crazy world, which is clearly not our home? And yet we're still called to find peace. How do we do that? Grab your Bibles. We're going to go to John 14. And we are finishing chapter 14 this morning. <sighs> the crowd roars. So we're going to look at the final seven verses from verse 25 to verse 31. Once again, we are up in the upper room, right? Just hours before Jesus is to be arrested and taken away from his disciples. And so with their world about to turn upside down, he is continuing to provide them all the encouragement and all the promises that he can to bring them the comfort they need in this moment. We, it's so easy to read right through this and not put your feet in the sandals of these men, these 11 men, and try to understand the stress on their life in this moment. As Jesus promises them, I'm going away and you cannot follow me. So far here in chapter 14, Jesus has been communicating all of these amazing promises to these guys, again, designed to give them comfort in this difficult moment. Let me just address some of them. He said, I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. Is that good news? It is. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself. Trust that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. You will do even greater works than I have after I'm gone. I will send you another helper who is just like me. I will not leave you as orphans. You will see me again. My Father and I will make our home in you through the Holy Spirit. And because I live, you will live also. So think about that's a That's a pretty amazing list of promises in just one chapter of Scripture. Now, what I want to do today is do something a little bit unusual. I want to start at the end of this passage. So drop down to the very last phrase in verse 31 and listen to how this scene in the upper room is about to end. Last phrase in verse 31, Jesus says to his friends, get up, let us go from here. Or get up, let us leave this place, meaning the upper room. So th there's been a question for 2,000 years now about whether those 12 guys actually got up and left in this moment. A huge debate about it. Huge debate. And here's why. Keep your Bible ribbon there in chapter 14 and now turn over to chapter 18. Chapter 18, verse 1. Here's why there is a question about whether, there's no question Jesus said, let's get up and go. The question is, did they do it? Did they actually get up and go? If you go over to chapter 18, verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. So here's what we know for sure. All this teaching that's taking place in chapter 14 in the upper room is leading us to the Garden of Gethsemane, right? That's where Jesus is going to be arrested. 
The question is, when did the group actually get up and leave the upper room and head towards the garden? Was it here at the end of chapter 14? You can go back there if you want. Was it at the end of chapter 14 or was it later at the beginning of chapter 18? Now, as I was working on this, I said, oh, here's a great excuse for a map, which is really exciting. So we have a map of the city of Jerusalem in the first century in Jesus' day, just so that you can envision this debate and, and where we're headed as we continue on in John's gospel. What you see there is uh, you see the red dot, which is uh, in what we call the upper city as opposed to the lower city or the city of David. And that red dot is the traditional site I don't think it's precise, but the traditional area where this upper room was located. The Garden of Gethsemane is way up there in the green toward the base of the Mount of Olives, right? And right across from, you can see there, the Temple Mount. So that's the distance that needed to be traveled to go from one place to the other. It's a little bit over a mile if you walk it. And some of you have, like me, have been to Israel and we've walked this, this road. It's a little over a mile. takes about maybe 25 minutes. So keep that in mind as we as we uh, continue in the story. This is probably, by the way, the path that they took, the most logical path. If they came down the steps to the lower city, they came out by the Pool of Siloam, where, where what they, they call the Watergate is, and exited the, the city walls there, and then just walked up what we call the Kidron Valley until they got near the garden, and then they climbed up, up to the Garden of Gethsemane. So that's most likely what's going on. I'll have another picture in just a moment. So there's, there's two theories here. Again, some scholars think that Jesus said, let's get up and leave, but then the group chose to linger there in the upper room. They just hung out. And, and if, you, if you've ever tried to get a group of 11 people to gather all their stuff together and get up and leave, you know that's possible. They just didn't want to get up or they couldn't pull it together. And, say, and then at some point Jesus said, well, I actually have some more things to share with you anyway. And by the way, I want to pray for you. And that's John chapter 17. And so the first theory is, is they stayed there. They lingered until that verse we read in chapter 18. The other theory is that the group did get up and leave the upper room at the end of chapter 14 and that there was probably a strategic reason for that. Think about this. When Judas left the group, he left that room, didn't he? So it's likely that he, when, he, when he went to the temple guard to get them to come to arrest Jesus, he thought, I'm going back to that room. So if Jesus had more to share, and again, he's in control of the timeline here, don't get me wrong, but if Jesus had more to teach the disciples and a desire to pray for them, is it possible that Jesus said, it would be strategic for us to leave this room right now and get up and move so that we don't become an easy target for arrest? That, that's very possible. So by this theory, the group got up and left the room in chapter 14. And all of the teaching then that takes place in chapter 15 and chapter 16 and even the prayer over his disciples in chapter 17 happened during that 25-minute walk from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. In other words, it was a mobile teaching time, not, not static. And maybe, maybe they went walking together, and at certain moments along the way, Jesus stopped and taught, and then they walked some, uh, some more. Uh, and by the way, I think that's probably the most, I prefer that second theory, that that's probably what happened, just because I want to take the language seriously here. And by the way, here's a picture, just so that you can get an image of this. This was the last time I was in the land in 2019 before the pandemic. And there we are, there's my group in the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're looking up, you can see the Temple Mount right there across, across the way. So you get a sense of the terrain there. The, the Temple Mount is high, isn't it? It's lifted up. And then it dips down into this Kidron Valley and back up to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
just so you can understand. All right. So in my opinion, that's how this section of John's gospel is going to end, with this group beginning to move through the city and toward the garden. Let's back up now to verse 30. The previous verse, verse 30. I want you to hear the urgency that is present in Jesus' voice. Verse 30 says, I will not speak much more with you. For the archon of the world, the ruler or the prince of this world is coming. That's an ominous statement, isn't it? And he has nothing in me. Now that's an awkward phrase, isn't it? He has nothing in me. Now I'm not a fan of how that reads in the New American Standard, but it is the most literal translation of the original Greek. A better way to understand it or read it is from the ESV that says, the ruler of this world is coming and he has no claim on me. He has no claim on me. Continuing in verse 31. But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. So the clock now is ticking, right? Satan is drawing near to the Son of God in the person of Judas and in the person of the temple guard that he has with him. So this is, this is the, 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 the precipice of the clash of the ages, the powers of darkness now coming straight at the light of the world and his goal is to try to, it's, it's hard to imagine he can be this prideful, but to disrupt the Almighty's plan. But that's what's going on here. Of course, in his arrogance, Satan is badly miscalculated. And Jesus' statement here in verse 30 is designed to show his disciples and to show us that the enemy, as prideful and strong as he is, trying to take a direct shot at Jesus, he has no power over the Son of God. The underlying meaning of that phrase, he has nothing in me, is this. Satan has absolutely no foothold from which he can launch a legitimate attack against God the Son. Why? Because there's no accusation to be made against him. There's no, no sin or guilt in Jesus that would allow Satan to set the hook like he likes to do with us, right? To set the hook and then pull. He has no footing for that. All Satan can do in this moment is attack Jesus physically, to strike him physically. But that's a losing hand. In this high-stakes poker game, that is a losing hand. The outcome's already been determined. The cross is looming, and Jesus will have the victory through that cross in spite of what Satan thinks he can accomplish. And just so we understand why Jesus is allowing Satan to do this work, to strike him physically, he says it right here. He basically says, look, Satan is coming for me, and he will direct events toward my physical death, but I will not be deterred. So that the world will see and know that I love my Father, I will obey him completely. What does that mean? That means going to the cross. Jesus knows Satan is coming. He knows he's going to be physically attacked. Yet he says, I will go to the cross. I will endure all of its shame so that I might bring many sons and daughters to glory. And I will do it out of obedience. So here's the bottom line. Satan is not the cause of the crucifixion. Obedience. Obedience is what explains the cross. And Jesus wanted his disciples to know this in advance. So when they see him taken away, when they see him in being tried before the Sanhedrin, when they see him nailed to that cross, they will know that obedience is behind it all. Make sense? Jesus is weaving his sovereignty through these final words. He is in charge. You have to know that. Satan's not in charge. Satan's a bit player in this right? Herod's not in charge. The Sanhedrin's not in charge. Pilate's not in charge. 
Nobody takes Jesus' life. He lays it down of his own accord. And again, he's giving us one last example for us to follow in his obedience and his love for God the Father. It's really actually very beautiful, isn't it? All right, in the next three verses now, Jesus is going to give us two more promises to encourage the troubled hearts of his disciples. Look at verse 25. I'm going to give you two more promises. First of all, he reiterates the promise he's already made. We talked about this, the coming of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned that he's going to, he's going to go back on this four different times to talk about the, the coming of the Spirit. But in this section, he talks about two important things that the Spirit will do when the Spirit comes. And these are huge things. Look at verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you or while I'm still with you. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, here comes the two things that he'll do. Number one, he will teach you all things. And number two, he will bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So you got to remember, Jesus at his core is a rabbi to these 11 men. He's a teacher. Teaching his disciples, that's what he's been doing for three years now. All that they need to know about him and about God the Father. But the training isn't done. Not by any means, right? The teaching work must continue, and now it's going to be continued by this helper who is of the same kind as Jesus, the third person of the Trinity. And it's so important to notice that language. This is very important to know. The Holy Spirit's work in Christ followers, even today, is a ministry of continuation. He's continuing the work Jesus did. It's not like the Spirit comes and he says, okay, like, like a, a blackboard. Erase everything Jesus said and did. That doesn't matter anymore because I'm here. He doesn't start from scratch. He continues the work of the Lord. Make sense? And alongside that promise of teaching is the promise that he will supernaturally remind these men of everything that Jesus said. And they're going to need that, aren't they? How many of you guys remember what happened last week? The things you learned? Or a week ago or a month ago or three years ago? These guys are going to need divine help to remember all the things that Jesus said and did, right? And as the Spirit does this, he's going to give them more and more clarity in terms of what Jesus taught. Give them more clarity in terms of how many aha moments do you think the disciples had after Jesus was gone and the Spirit came and was within them? They were like, oh, how do we miss that? <laughs> oh, how did we not understand that? That's the work of the Spirit, bringing these things to mind and giving them the clarity that they needed related to all those moments that they had with the Master. And of course, that's going to become absolutely critical for the writing down of the Gospels, isn't it? What a promise this is for the accurate transmission of God's Word there in the first century. See, many critics will say, there's no way we can trust the New Testament because these guys walked with Jesus, but it took them decades before they stopped and wrote everything down. But to take that position is to deny, deny the promise that Jesus makes right here in John 14. The Holy Spirit has unlimited power, unlimited power to help people recall things in the mind, to have the gospel writers remember everything that Jesus said, to carry along Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, carry them along so that in their recollection, they perfectly write down exactly what God wants them to to write down. And so they eventually, by the work of the Spirit, produce the inerrant word that we have in our Bibles today. This promise about what the Spirit will do is very important 
right, for the foundation of the text that we love so much. And what's cool is that even, even 2,000 years later here in Santa Clarita, this promise is still unfolding. And maybe you didn't even think about this when you woke up this morning. You were just tired. You're just worn out from the week. And you're like, I am going to somehow will myself to get to church. I want you to know, if you as a modern day disciple are being careful to listen this morning, as I exposit the word, if you're being careful and sensitive to how the Spirit is illuminating the text right now in your mind, how the Spirit is applying the text to your heart, then you are participating in this promise that was made 2,000 years ago in the upper room. You're a part of this unfolding teaching of the Holy Spirit. How cool is that? And this is really the great joy of every preacher, right? That we get to play just a tiny role in this divine process. And going back to how the world deals with anxiety, this is what separates the believer from the non-believer. While the world is trying to put all these temporary external band-aids on this wound of anxiety, we have this massive advantage as believers. We have God the Spirit within us. He's teaching us and reminding us and guiding us and convicting us and, yes, healing our inner person. And so what an advantage we have. Yeah, we can deal with anxiety because of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. Amen? So that's the first of these two great comforts in this passage. Let's look at the second one, verse 27. And this is really the big idea for this morning. Look at verse 27. Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you, had ever, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Okay, there's a ton of, ton of stuff in there. I literally thought I could just do a sermon here, but the elders wouldn't let me do that. So uh, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're going to get through this. Okay. I've got to take a few moments to address the elephant in the room there, right? There's an elephant in that passage. Did you see it? The Father is greater than I. Whew. Okay. For people who want to deny the full deity of Christ and prove to you that Jesus is some form of lesser God, if that were possible, right? If, if we were polytheists, that Jesus was some type of lesser God, this is their absolute favorite passage, their absolute favorite phrase. How many of you guys have ever sat down and had an extended conversation with a Jehovah's Witness? Yep, they're just the Aryans of today, aren't they? Right? And they love this path. You, if you get into an extended conversation, know that they're going to turn to John 14. And they're going to push this one in your face and say, Jesus is a lesser God. And listen, we need to have good answers for these things, right? This is a tough passage. So we, we always say it here at Oak Hill, Know not just what you believe, but why you believe it. And, and take seriously what Peter says, right? When he says, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that you have, right? To give reasons. So we should be able to deal with difficult verses when we're challenged on them. So when I speak to JWs about this, the first thing I'll do is be honest and say, yeah, this is a tough passage. What I found in, in developing rapport with, with Christian cults like this is a little humility right? And a little honesty will go a long way to set the tone. But then I'm going to ask the JW what he or she thinks of the many, 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 many statements in the New Testament that speak about the deity of Christ. 
and his absolute equality with the Father. And, and you should be prepared for this. I'll rattle off just a few and then offer to send them a follow-up text with a hundred plus different statements in the New Testament that Jesus is God, right? And that usually throws them off their game just a bit. And then I'll pose this question. We agree that scripture doesn't contradict itself. They will agree to that. So when we have two passages that appear in our finite minds to contradict each other, how do we resolve the problem? And I'll wait for their answer. And it's a very, usually very, they'll say one of two things. They'll say either, well, I listen to what my church tells me, or we let scripture interpret scripture, right? And I'll say, good, the second one is correct. <laughs> because the first one, men are fallible. Churches are fallible. Don't let a church tell you what you should believe. You should seek the truth in God's word and let the Holy Spirit teach you. So in light of that, I will say, should we interpret the 100 plus statements in the New Testament about Jesus' full deity by this one phrase in John 14? Or should we interpret this one phrase in John 14 in light of the entire scope of the New Testament? And again, let them answer that question. Now, sometimes it doesn't go the way you want it to go, but that's an important question. The obvious answer is we don't overturn the many, 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 many clear theological statements about Jesus' identity by citing one phrase in one verse. That is, a, that is a, a bad way to do exegesis. In fact, we do the opposite. We seek to figure out what Jesus meant in this one phrase in light of all of those clear theological statements in the New Testament. Does that make sense? We've got to make sure we know that. So what did Jesus mean then? How do we do that? How do, knowing who Jesus is, and we can start just in John 1.1, 1, 1, right? We know who Jesus is. We know what he, who he claimed to be. Then what did he mean here? Well, the answer has to do with the incarnation, and one of the places we can go to help is Hebrews 2. Listen. Oh, sorry. I'm behind. Hebrews chapter 2. Okay? Look at this verse on the screen. The author of Hebrews says, We see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. So in order to suffer on behalf of mortal man, God would have to, for a time, be made lower than the angels. He would have to take on flesh. We know that's true from John 1, right? He would take on a human body. And then you, you, you put on top of Hebrews 2, Philippians 2, that tells us that the second person of the Trinity laid aside his glory, right? That he had shared with the Father from eternity past, and he took on the form of what? A servant. A servant who would become obedient to death on a cross. But that same passage in Philippians 2 also tells us that after the resurrection, he would be restored, to the glory he had with his father, that he would be seated at the right hand of power and that he would be worshiped as Lord by all of the universe, which sounds very godlike to me, right? Certainly not human. That's important. So he's made a little bit lower than the angels for a time. For a time, he has to lay aside his glory and take on a human form to be an obedient servant. We have to know that. Now, does it mean that, that God the Son relinquished his divine nature? Absolutely not. Listen, God cannot stop being God. All right? He did not relinquish his divine nature. What he did was give up the voluntary use of his divine attributes. 
Okay, voluntary use of his divine attributes in the flesh. And he subjected himself to the will of the Father in all things. That's that servanthood. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says the Father is greater than I. He's making a comparison between the Father in his glorious place in the heavenly realms and himself on earth in his incarnate state. So the greater speaks to the position of the Father over and against the position of the Son while he's in the flesh. And it also speaks to the one whose will is being carried out versus the one who in submission carries out the Father's will. In that sense, the Father is indeed greater than he. Does that make sense? Now, as I say that, we should also keep in mind the greater theological truth related to what we call, big phrase, the functional subordination of the Son. Okay, Here's what I mean by that. Within the Godhead... There is, another big phrase, ontological equality, right? Equality of personhood, equality of value. All three persons are equal in substance and nature. They are all God. Yet at the same time, there is this functional hierarchy that takes place between the three persons of the Trinity. It requires levels of submission. By the way, there's a beautiful parallel here with marriage, isn't there? Equal parties, but with a functional hierarchy. God is consistent throughout his word. So God the Son submits to God the Father, and God the Spirit submits to God the Father and God the Son. And they do this perfectly, without grumbling or complaining. (laughs) They do it in perfect agreement so that they can carry out the divine decree that was established before the foundations of the world were laid. So there is an ontological equality, but a functional hierarchy. So while being equal in every way, there is still a greaterness to the Father as compared to the Son. Does that make sense? These are important concepts. By the way, we can understand this better by using a very simple example. If I were to say to you, the President of the United States is greater than I, no jokes there, what would you say to that? Oh, Joe Biden's a greater human being than Jeff? No. Am I a lesser human being in nature and substance than Joe Biden? Obviously not. It would simply mean that Joe Biden is greater than me in all kinds of different ways, right? In influence, in wealth, in power, in notoriety. He's greater than me in that sense because of his position as president of the United States. But there's no ontological difference between me and Uncle Joe, right? We're we're human beings. Amen? We'll let that one sit. All right. Now look again at the middle of verse 28. Listen to Jesus' rebuke here. It's a gentle rebuke, but it's a rebuke. He says, If you loved me, you would rejoice because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So now that we understand what greater means, we can understand what Jesus means here. He's talking about returning to the glory that he had with the Father before he took on flesh, right? And he'll speak about this again in chapter 17. What this means is, you guys should rejoice that I'm going back to where I belong. Back to my, the fullness of my glory. No longer do I have to walk the dusty roads of Israel <laughs> and deal with sinful men and enemies that are ridiculing and attacking me all the time. Instead, I will be at the right hand of my Father, whom I love. Whom I love. And if the disciples had not been so focused on themselves, we do this, right? Pity party. Like, you're going away. So they're so focused on themselves and what they're going to lose here that they've completely forgotten about what's best for Jesus. 
They're selfish in this moment. So when we truly love someone, we want what's best for them. Even if it makes my life a little lonelier or my life a little more difficult, I want what's best for them. Had they seen that, they would have rejoiced that Jesus, that God the Son was returning to his glory in the heavenly realms. Now, let's focus the rest of our time here on this verse 27. This is so key. Let's talk about peace. Let's talk about peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives. Jesus qualifies it. He's like, look, guys, in case you misunderstand when I use the word peace, don't look to the world. This is my peace, he says. Well, how does the world give peace? Well, we've looked at it already, right? The techniques of the world are band-aids on this gaping wound. They don't have the power to fix the real problem. They're external in nature, right? It's the power of positive thinking. It's escapism. Ultimately, the, the world, what, what, just escape the negative circumstances so that you can transition into positive things in your life. It's all external. It doesn't fix the problem. Well, let's talk about peace biblically then. A quick search in Bible Gateway will tell you that the various forms of the word peace are found, get this now, 353 times in the Bible. So this is a big deal. So in the Old Testament, we have the, the word shalom, which we're all pretty familiar with. And that can refer to uh, shalom or peace between God and man. It can refer, refer to shalom between, between human beings. And it's often in the Old Testament tied to the fulfillment of a covenant or a promise. In the New Testament, the Greek word is similar in its meaning. It often carries the idea of finding rest. Doesn't that sound great, by the way? In the stress of this world, finding rest. Ugh, I need that. Rest and tranquility. Now, here's the thing. If, you, if I were to go out and survey 100 Christians and ask them, what do you think the word peace means in a practical sense, I, I'd probably get a slew of different answers, all kinds of different things. And many of them would describe it as a feeling. And that's usually the first place our mind goes. When I say, what is peace? You describe it as a feeling that you have. Christians have a tendency to say, well, there's times when I feel peace and there's times when I don't feel peace. So oftentimes we would define biblical peace as situational and experiential and to be based on the absence of conflict in our lives or, or things that lead to my happiness. Okay? So in our minds, peace is when I'm not fighting with my spouse. Ah, I'm at peace. Or when the kids are in a, an obedient season of their lives. Does that ever happen? Peace is when I'm content in my job. Or, or peace is when I'm in a place of financial security. Then I feel peace. Generally speaking, peace is when I'm feeling happy about my life or I'm happy about my spiritual walk with the Lord. And, and, and there's partial truth to that, but it falls short of the full definition of what, what Jesus is promising here. So there's two dimensions to this that we have to know. First one is this. It's got to start with peace with God. Peace with God, which is mankind's greatest need. Not a feeling of peace, but peace with God. Because as we all know, we were born into a state of separation from God and in hostility towards God. So what we all need more than anything else is for a, a, a mediator to step in and broker a peace for us so that we can be at peace with God. So sinners, it's amazing to think, sinners can actually be reconciled with the pure and holy God. But who can broker that peace, right? Well, we know. It's only possible through Christ, who bore the penalty for our sins on the cross. Romans 5.1 sums it up perfectly. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, the rest of the sermon is meaningless. So if you don't have peace with God here this morning, you haven't bowed your knee to him in submission, you haven't trusted in him alone, this sermon's not going to connect with you. You've got to start with peace with God. Make sense? Now, once we have that, we can enjoy the second peace, which is the peace of God. The peace that God gives. Here's the key. Even in the midst of suffering, the peace of God. Now, here's the thing. That type of peace doesn't come automatically. And it doesn't come easily without striving on our part. It requires work. We talked about it a little bit last week, this idea of striving, right? Of working hard for holiness. In this case, working hard to find that peace that comes from God. It's not automatic. In fact, there's times when peace can be very, very elusive. That's why, by the way, Jesus commands it here. Did you see the command form in verse 1? Do not let your heart be troubled. That's a command. That's an imperative. Here in verse 27, he says again, Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. That's the command to the believer. In other words, in stressful moments, you're going to have to make an intentional decision to control your emotions and fall back on what you know to be true from the Word of God. That takes striving, to control your emotions in that moment and fall back on what you know to be true. So the objective peace we have with God informs and gives shape to our subjective emotions as we strive to find rest in the peace of God. One leads to the other. But we got to strive for that. we got to work for that. I'll give you a biblical example of this. This is one of my favorites. Psalm 57. You know the story of David running from King Saul? Saul wants him dead. And Saul is searching all over the Judean countryside with his army searching for David. And David is hiding where? In a cave. He's hiding in a cave. Well, how would you feel in that moment? Slightly fearful? I mean, they're hunting you. Your head is on the chopping block. And in Psalm 57, in the midst of this, here's what it says. It says, in fact, I'll put it on the, on the screen. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises. This is David striving for peace in an incredibly stressful situation. So much that he has to state his resolve twice. He repeats himself. I'm steadfast. My heart is steadfast in you, O Lord. I will sing. I will sing your praises. He's battling for the peace that he knows God can give in that difficult moment. So as Christ followers, we're commanded. Here it is, Colossians, right? Let the peace of God rule your heart. Let the peace of God rule your heart. That means in the midst of the storms of life, we have this choice to trust in God's promises or to say, no thanks, I'll rely on my own resources. I'll find my way out of this. I'll make myself feel better about what's going on. You, will, you can find the peace of God if you trust in Him. You will not find the peace of God if you trust in yourself. One works, one doesn't. So we when we strive to trust in God's Word and in His promises, again, knowing that He's sovereign over everything, why would you trust in yourself when you can't control things and refuse to trust in the one who can? I mean, it's, 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 it's the utter top of foolishness, is it not? But we do it because we're stubborn and we're sinners. But you will experience an inner calm and freedom from anxiety when you turn to him and his promises. And it will defy explanation. In fact, that's why Paul calls it, we read it in our call to worship earlier, 
The peace of God that surpasses understanding. We quote that all the time, but do we stop and think about what it means? It surpasses comprehension, meaning people outside of the church, unbelievers, they, they cannot understand it because the source of that type of peace is not human. It's divine. Sometimes when we quote this verse, we're still searching for human peace. But what we want is divine peace so that external circumstances can't make it waver. External pressures can't destroy it because it comes from God. So in light of this kind of peace, Paul says, be anxious for nothing. You don't have to worry about things. Leave your burdens and trials in God's hand. You know that he's good. You know that he's sovereign. So rest in his love. We just have to, we, we have to lean into that in the midst of the storm, don't we? To control our emotions and come back to the word and say, these are the promises of God. Now I'm going to walk in them. I'm not going to retreat. I'm not going to go back to con- trying to control everything. I'm going to walk in those promises. Listen, I, I, could, I started writing this list and at two pages later, I'm like, I need to cut this back. But think about the promises of God. He gives strength to the weary. Right? His love for you never fails. He has redeemed you and adopted you as his own. The Lord will fight for you. In Christ, you have forgiveness of sins. Your old self is dead. Sin is no longer your master. God will exalt the humble. He will provide all of your needs. He will work all things together for good, for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. In him, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. He goes before his children, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Our present sufferings cannot compare to the future glory that we will see someday. He has overcome the world. He's prepared a place for you, and he's coming again soon. That's just a, that's just a small sampling of the promises that we have in the word. Why then? Why do we worry? Why can't we find peace when we've been given all those promises? Why don't we recall them and walk by faith in them? What a great exercise it would be if everybody went home today and just started a list. I'm going to start a list of all the promises that I see in scripture. As I'm reading the word, I'm just going to jot them down. You would have a notepad of promises that you could go back to. Now, look, I'm not trying to paint a picture that's all peaches and cream. It's all going to be easy. The enemy is always going to try to weaken you in this area. It's one of his great, great tools in his arsenal to distract you from God's promises. He will try to weigh you down with worry. He will try to shake your peace and he will want to sideline you from doing ministry through worry and anxiety. So those promises, I want you to picture this now, can be wielded as spiritual weapons. 2 Corinthians 10.4 speaks of this, right? We have spiritual weapons that we can wield against the enemy. And one of those is going back to the promises of God and resting in them. So we meditate on those. We bring them, we bring our requests to the throne of grace and prayer. We cast our cares on the one who is in control of all things. We have spiritual weapons. We are not defenseless creatures in Christ. We have spiritual armor and spiritual weapons. So rather than worry, Paul says, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we make our requests known to God. Is that your first reaction to difficulty? To come to the throne of grace? 
When we do that, you know what the promise is, right? The peace of God will guard our hearts and our minds. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It's a really important question to ask of your own heart. Do I trust that? Or is that just a verse I learned in Sunday school? And I, forgot, I forget it every time I go through a hard time. Do I believe that? Things get tough. Things fall apart. Things get chaotic and out of control. But in the midst of that, God promises that he has this amazing love and grace for us. Paul says he will guard your heart and your mind. So when you approach him with your anxieties, in faith and in worship, he's going to anchor your heart to his promises when you come to him. And in the very place where others will try to stamp out your joy, stamp out your contentment, steal your peace, the Lord promises he will come and he will guard your mind from unbiblical thinking. That's the promise in this verse. He will anchor your heart to his promises and he will guard your mind from unbiblical thinking. That's what we need in the midst of the storm. Amen? Now let me give you another caution. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It was our call, part of our call to worship this morning. I've known Christians who thought this was some type of magical formula that if I just follow this step-by-step process, all the negative circumstances in my life will go away. This is actually taught, right? In the Word of Faith movement and in others. It'll, it'll all just magically disappear. Let us not be naive. Let us not presume upon the Lord. The reality is this. As, first of all, as his child, he will hear your prayer. There's no question about that. He will hear your prayer. But that doesn't mean he's going to change your circumstance. Okay? If it's his will that you need to stay in that trial, you will stay in that trial. You have to know that. It's better for you. If that's the case, if that's his will, it's better for you that you stay there. And that's when the challenge of this verse, this passage really comes into focus. Because ask yourself this question, do I trust God only insofar as he acts as my personal genie? and fixes all my problems? Or do I trust God even if the, the trial stays or even gets worse? Will I come to him in prayer and in worship? But in the meantime, Paul exhorts us to dwell on certain things, right? You heard it this morning. Whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, whatever's excellent and worthy of praise. And here's the thing. In difficulty, our flesh wants to do the opposite, doesn't it? Oh man, this is this is a moment of transparency. This is me too. When, when I'm going through a hard time, I don't want to dwell on those things. I want to grumble and I want to gripe and I want to complain about my situation and I want to blame everybody else around me and I want to make excuses for my own choices. I don't want to dwell on good things. We've got to change our thinking. We've got to renew our minds. Paul's command is to rejoice instead. <coughs> Stop worrying. Bring everything to God. Flavor your prayers with thanksgiving. What a key that is. Rather than grumbling and griping and saying, woe is me, look how hard my life is, flavor your requests with thanksgiving and praise. Always. Renew your thinking. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Reject the enemy's attempts to throw you off. You serve a great God who loves you. And guys, this is, this is what Jesus is communicating to his disciples in that upper room that night. He's, in a roundabout way, giving them all of these promises. He's saying, look, I know, I know it's going to be hard when I leave. I know when they take me away, it is going to be very hard on you guys. But have faith that I'm in control of these events 
and I'm gonna, I've given you these promises, all of these promises, that you can rest in them. So do not let your heart be troubled. Don't be afraid. My peace I give to you, he says. Bring your trials and difficulties. Bring me your emotions and your feelings. And as your great high priest, I will guard your heart and I will guard your mind and I will grant you a divine sense of peace that the world cannot understand. Man, it's good stuff. Friends, there, there's no true peace to be found apart from God. I mean, you can put the Band-Aid on it. You can play around with it. You can try to be positive. There is no peace apart from God, apart from Christ. And without him, you'd be stuck trying to implement all these human techniques. And to be honest, I cannot imagine living that life. Again, think about how would you be coping today if you didn't have Christ in your life? It would be so hard. Can I also say this? This is the message we've been given for the world that has a great need. The world is struggling right now. This community is struggling with fear and anxiety. And we have the remedy. It's easy as Christians to start complaining about, oh man, this is such a tough atmosphere to share Christ. Really? Really? The world is looking for answers and we have it. So don't forget that. Serious question. Are you thankful this morning for the peace of God in your life? Have we been promised an easy life? No. A stormless life? No. Have we been promised that upsetting things are going to just stop because we worship Jesus? No. But God has promised a peace that transcends all of that. And because the gospel is true, we can trust it. We can trust the word. We can trust in his promises. We can rely upon his grace, which is always sufficient for the needs of the day. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are as a people to be in your presence this morning, to praise your name, to know that you are there, that you love us, that you hear our prayers, that you care about every detail of our lives, that you have given us so many promises that we can rest in. Lord, uh, you know how hard it is right now for those of us living on the earth, in these, in these bodies, in this world, in this culture, how we struggle, Lord. It's my prayer for this church family, for myself, that we would continually, continually fall back on what we know is true, that we would come back to the word and to the promises that you've given us, that you are a good God, that you are a sovereign God, that, that you promise to meet all of our needs, you promise to carry us through the storms of this life. Lord, seal these truths to our hearts. Do not let us be troubled, do not let us be fearful, but let us constantly fix our eyes on you. Lord, thank you for this amazing passage, for this entire time we've had in the 14th chapter of John. May it bear fruit in our lives and in the life of this church as we continue to let your spirit teach us. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.